This is a HeadGum Podcast. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you so much for joining me once again as I talk to an incredible expert about all the amazing things that they know that I don't know and that you might not know. Both of our minds are going to get blown together and oh my God, we're going to have so much fun doing it. And today we're going to continue our discussion of artificial intelligence. Pretty much everyone agrees that artificial intelligence is dangerous, but no one can agree on precisely how. Even the companies that are developing AI claim, weirdly enough, to be terrified about the future of their own technology. And recently, we've been treated to news story after news story about the people who run those companies testifying before legislators or meeting with world leaders begging for them to regulate them. But, you know, shouldn't we be suspicious of that? After all, when the CEO of a capitalist company is begging for the government to regulate them, It stands to reason that they might be doing so because, you know, they think they can extract specific laws that will help their bottom line and hurt their competitors. And at the same time, you know who's been excluded from those meetings? Scholars and scientists who actually study the real harms that AI could have, not to mention the people who have already suffered those harms. Forget a super powerful AI taking over the world. Past guests Emily Bender and Timney Gebru have raised the alarm about real-world harms like algorithmic bias or the spread of misinformation, and those harms barely come up when the tech CEOs are hanging out with the presidents and prime ministers. The point is, when someone who runs a billion-dollar company tells you what they think you should be scared of, you should be a little bit skeptical. And instead, you should look to the real experts, the scholars and scientists, to find out what their concerns are. And that is what we are going to continue to do on this show. Now, I want to be clear, because this is a new, fast-moving field, not all of our experts are going to agree with each other or even agree with me about every detail. And that's why I'm going to continue to speak with a range of experts on this issue so that we can explore different perspectives in hope of getting closer to the truth. And today, we have a fantastic guest for you. But before I tell you who he is, I want to remind you that if you want to support this show, you can do so on Patreon. Just head to patreon.com slash Adam Conover. You can get every episode of this podcast ad-free for just five bucks a month. And if you love stand-up comedy, come see me on tour. I'm back on the road heading to Baltimore, St. Louis, and brand new Buffalo and Providence, Rhode Island. If you live in or near any of those areas, head to adamconover.net for tour dates and tickets. Now, let's get to this week's guest. Gary Marcus is a cognitive scientist, author, and a leading expert on AI. He recently testified before the Senate, and he publishes a regular newsletter called The Road to AI We Can Trust. I know you're going to love this conversation. Please welcome Gary Marcus. Gary, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So what are your biggest concerns about AI? I mean, I've heard from the tech CEOs 
We've heard some other academics. I want to hear from you. What are the biggest concerns that we should be looking at? Man, the first thing I would say is that there is no one thing. There's a, like within the AI field, there are people fighting. They're like, my risk is more important than your risk. My short-term <laughs> risks are more important than your long-term risk. No, my long-term risks are more important than your short-term risk. It's like if somebody worked on car accidents, they'd be like, you cancer people. That takes like 40 years. I've got car accidents right now. And the cancer people would be <laughs> like, yeah, but 10 times more people die of cancer than car accidents. Like, why are you? I think it's ridiculous, right? You want to study both. And we have short-term risk and long-term risk. AI is increasingly, I won't say powerful, but empowered to control our lives. And that has lots of ramifications. And some of them are short-term. Like the one I care personally most about is democracy. Misinformation from AI is going to make the 2024 election a total shit show. You know, we've got deep fakes, we have fake text from large language models, um, you know, the, the voice cloning, all this kind of stuff is going to make the 2024 election. So nobody trusts anybody. And that's not good for democracy. So that's my biggest personal fear. <clears throat> but there's also going to be tons of cybercrime, for example. So people are already using voice cloning to um, do these rackets where they call you and they say your kid's been kidnapped, send, you know, Bitcoin to this and people actually send the money. So and that's a like that. version of a scam that already existed. My grandmother, before she passed away was a victim of a scam like that, where a, a scammer called her up, pretended to be me and said he was in a car accident and, you know, was crying over the phone. So she couldn't tell it wasn't really my voice. Right. And she was in her nineties at the time. She went to Western union and wired the guy a couple thousand dollars. And then there was nothing to be done about it. Now imagine combining that with somebody taking my voice print, which they could easily do. There's hundreds of hours of me talking on the internet. Now they only need uh, like 30 that, seconds. So you can yeah. do it to anybody. A lot of these yeah, things. Yeah, that's a real risk. A lot of the risks that I'm worried about existed before. But I think of the analogy of like the difference between a knife and a submachine gun. Like a submachine gun makes it possible to do wholesale what you had to do retail before. You know, suddenly you can kill a lot of people in five minutes instead of one at a time. Um, it changes the dynamics of things. Misinformation is thousands of years old, probably. But to ability to do it essentially for free, not even in your native language with, you know, make it sound like scientific and stuff like that changes the game. It's not new, but it's much worse. So you have all of those things. Then you have um, the possibility that people will use this not only to manipulate our elections, but also our markets. You know, somebody made a fake picture of the Pentagon exploding. And this was a couple of weeks ago. And the whole market moved down um, like 5% for four minutes or something like that. So in, wait, in response to a fake image of the Pentagon exploding? People thought, some people thought it was real. And this is something that's easily fact-checked. Like if you live close to the Pentagon, you can look yeah. out the window and see it's not but, real. But, but it, that's something it went that could have been done. It went viral. Yeah. And so the market actually moved for a few minutes and then people figured ah, it out. Okay. And so, you know, some less than shiny human beings are going to take note of that. They're going to be like, wow, I can short the market by putting out misinformation. So we're going to see a whole lot of market scams. But some of the things that you're talking about are things that were already possible, right? I mean, someone could have Photoshopped uh, an image of the Pentagon exploding without using any kind of generative AI model. Uh, yeah. yeah, they could have done that five years ago. And we and we already saw scams it's, like that. It's all uh, about the volume. The volume is going to mm. increase rapidly. So you have those risks. And then there are further risks. So you know, some people talk about existential risk, um, that machines are going to turn us all into paper clips. I don't think that's very plausible. It's certainly not plausible anytime soon. But there are serious risks. You know, people are in love with these systems. They don't realize how dumb they actually are. And they want to hook them up to everything like driverless cars. And 
you know, people may eventually hook them up to like power grids and I don't know what. And you can imagine bad actors, you know, causing lots of mayhem. You know, we blame the Russians for it and it's not actually the Russians' fault. And then we start yelling at them and they yell at us. And next thing you know, there's like, you know, some conflict that could really escalate. And so there are a lot of ways in which fundamentally I think these technologies are destabilizing. That's not to say there aren't any positives from them. You know, they're very good, for example, in helping computer programmers code more efficiently and get more code mm-hmm. written. So there are upsides and there are downsides. The only intellectually honest thing to say is this is all new and we don't know if the upsides are going to outweigh the downsides. But we need to figure this out and not rush quite so fast. But how much of what is new, though, is the actual technology versus how we're talking about the technology, like large language models are, uh, you know, and the uh, the sort of image based models that are similar are a very cool advancement. The tech is really interesting. It also is limited in what it can do, as you've pointed out many times on your Substack. And yet you have now people like Sam Altman types and, and people of that ilk who are talking about, okay, well, now that we've built large language models that can output text, we're on our way to general intelligence and it's going to turn us all into paper clips. And also it's going to have all these huge ramifications. The technology is so incredible. It's so powerful. Uh, and uh, yet at the same time, you're saying that one of the big risks is that we might hook up bad technology that is actually pretty limited to systems that harm us. It, it seems to me sometimes that really what were the problem here. Half of the problem is the hype itself, that we have people overhyping technology that can't do w- what they claim it can. hundred percent. You know, we should be able to tell the machines basic moral values, like don't harm humans and be honest. And the reality is they're too dumb to do those things. They were particularly mm-hmm. too dumb to be honest. They don't really understand the facts in the world. Like if you compare to classical databases, you tell them something and they don't make anything up ever. You know, they retrieve what you told them. But large language models, because of the way they work, they're basically like putting little bits and pieces together that are statistically associated, but not necessarily um, causally connected or not truthfully connected. They just make stuff up. Like one of my favorite examples is a system that said on March 18th of 2018, Tesla CEO Elon Musk was uh, involved in a fatal car collision. Well, it would take any human being two seconds to realize that that can't be true. You know, who is in the news every single day since 2018? Only Elon Musk, right? He's the most popular person, or popular is maybe a a complicated word there. He's the most covered human being. He's on Twitter every day. There are news stories, you know, many news stories about him every day. Obviously, he's still alive. If these systems were rational in the way that some people misunderstand them to be, they could just look that up. The reason that they say it, anyway, is they don't know how to look it up. They don't know how to do the least bit of fact checking. But statistically, a lot of people have died in car accidents. Some of them died in Tesla and he owns Tesla and they don't understand the relationships between owning a, owning a <laughs> Tesla right, that's company and owning a Tesla uh-huh. car. That Those are different. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and uh, I mean, fundamentally, it's because what it's doing is it's mashing related words together, that's right? There isn't. It's doing. It's very hard for people yeah. to grasp. But you have got it. That's all they're doing. They're mashing words together. They do it in a very sophisticated way. You know, they're the best word mashers that we've ever invented. But mm-hmm. that is ultimately all they're doing. And that's why you can't trust them. Now, do you feel that at some level, even the phrase artificial intelligence is, uh, you know, a, a marketing term that is being used to mislead people about what this is capable of? Because, again, I think large language models are cool 
I enjoy playing with them. They can do things with words that previous algorithms could not do. Are they intelligent? Like, and you know, uh, is the connection of artificial intelligence as a phrase to the entire history of that phrase, the way it's used in science fiction, the way it's been used in, you know, computer science historically, is that, is that accurate or is it somehow, uh, you know, to some degree a concession to marketing that is, that is misleading us about these, uh, I'll give, about these I'll technologies? I'll give you two answers to that. One is it's absolutely okay. marketing. Um, it might be possible, but it does make me think of Gandhi on Western civilization. Do you remember this? So somebody says mm -hmm. to Gandhi, what do you think of Western civilization? And he says, well, it would be a very good idea. <laughs> you know, right. AI, <laughs> yeah. you know, like maybe someday we really will have artificial intelligence in the intuitive sense of like systems that are actually intelligent, that can reliably reason about the world. Right now we have things like chess computers. And if you want to call them intelligent, that's a matter of definition, but it's certainly not what we think about when we think about like the Star Trek computer, where you would come to it, you'd say, I have this problem. So I have, you know, seven dilithium crystals and I need to make it home. What do I do? Right. And it would like do the computations for you and come up with a good idea. Mm -hmm. We don't have AI that can really do that. We have AI that can do very specific problems. And then we have large language models, which are much more general, but they don't do anything in a reliable way. And so you can take your pick right now and you can make your definitions what you want. But, you know, we don't have machines that are intelligent in the sense that you are like, you can hold this conversation. You've had a few others on this general topic, but you know, you're keeping up, even if it's not your area, you're able to assimilate these ideas into what yeah. you already understand. We don't have systems that really do that. Yeah. And it seems a little bit like we are uh, part of the problem is that a panic around the topic has been created when we have an advance, but it's not necessarily a sea change. I mean, you mentioned chess computers as an example of artificial intelligence. They absolutely are by any definition, but you know, deep blue beat Bar Gary Kasparov in what the late nineties, early two yeah. thousands. Um, and I'm sure there was a bit of a panic at the time as well, you know, and read, you know, Newsweek or whatever about, Oh, computers are going to replace everybody's jobs. Well, now we have something that can output text. Um, and that's an advancement, but uh, the, the level of hysteria that we're seeing around the topic uh, seems to me out of proportion. And it seems like it, it might itself create harms. Um, and create an opportunity right. for, actually, for business actors. There's to do actually a, um, there's a little bit of a an undercurrent, let's say, in the Twitterverse, where people are wondering whether the big tech CEOs are actually deliberately focusing on the most sensationalist stuff in order to divert attention away from the most immediate things. So the real I, that is what I actually believe. I be, that that is what it seems like to me. So to, what do you think of that idea? I mean, I think different. Different people running the tech companies or divisions of the tech companies are different people, and 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 some of them mm -hmm. are genuinely worried about the long term risk and really like can't sleep at night because they think it's so imminent. Maybe they take current AI more seriously than I do, and some of them are like, you know, what can we do to get the heat off of us around misinformation, which we can't do. Can I say fuck all on your show about? Um, yes, you can. As opposed to like the long-term risk, which we can't do fuck all, but it, nobody's going to hold us responsible for that. I mean, the most cynical thing that I saw is somebody that said, yeah, they're basically positioning themselves so they can say, yeah, well, the world went to hell. We could have stopped it, but we chose not to. But we wrote this letter saying we warned you and like, <laughs> great. Thanks a lot for the letter. Or we warned you about something else that we think might happen 500 years from now. Exactly. And uh, in the meantime, actually you lost focusing democracy, on the democracy, but, you know, yeah. at least you didn't turn into paperclips yet. And of course, the fact right. is, 
if we lose democracy and we you know turn into an author- authoritarian nation state that seizes all of the intellectual property and they turn it into a paperclip making machine, then we're still screwed. Right. So like, it, it's not <laughs> a great, you know, uh, step for the long-term outcome to in the short term, allow democracy to be destroyed. So, yeah. Yeah. Now I, I, I imagine you, you've spoken before the Senate. Uh, I, I imagine that you have uh, a view on how we need to regulate AI I certainly believe we need to have some regulations in place. I think we need some regulations in place about most things and that, you know, that is the duty of lawmakers is to figure out what those regulations should be. And tell that be. to Silicon um, Valley. They've like invented this idea <laughs> that you can't regulate anything. I'm like, do you go on commercial airlines? Like we have regulation all the <laughs> Would you really like us to take back seatbelt laws? Like knowing the statistics on how many lives they save? But the like yeah. techno libertarian left, like Mark Andreessen, who blocked me on Twitter. Like these guys, like <laughs> I, I don't know what to say. Like, of course we can need regulation. The real question is what regulation we need. Like exactly. And, and we've been treated to this strange spectacle of some of these AI CEOs calling for regulation, but of regulations of you know their own design, uh, which immediately makes me suspicious when someone is saying, "Hey, regulate me," and I have some great ideas for what the regulation should be. Uh, I'm like, oh, hold on a second. Sounds like you want to write some laws. And I, I wonder if those well, might be you, because you benefit, you they benefit the, themselves. Did you see the expose in Time Magazine by Billy Perigo today? No, I didn't. Please tell me about it. He, he filed a Freedom of Information Act and got access to a lobbying document that OpenAI made. And so here you have Sam Altman appearing next to me on the Senate, or more like I appeared next to him, but, you know, and saying how important <laughs> you know, regulation is, but his lobbying team is going to the EU saying, you know, this stuff is too strict. We're not going to be able to do our large language models. You got to tone this down. Um, and so this is, you know, very much at least the company speaking from two sides of its mouth. Um, it, it's a pretty important expose that, that came out earlier today. And that's exactly what we don't want is regulatory capture. So the worst thing we could have is no regulation. Like that's obviously a disaster. But the second worst thing that we could have is laws that are made entirely by the companies by the larger companies that are affected them. That would have two negative consequences. One is they would shut out any kind of innovation from the startups if, if they wrote the, the laws to their choosing, like put huge regulatory requirements that the startups can't handle. Um, and also like lots of things that we care about, they don't care about. So here's an example, transparency. Like Microsoft says they care about transparency, but they use GPT-4 and we don't know what's inside of GPT-4. We don't know what data it's trained on. The data that's trained on matters for things like bias. And so like they're going to write regulations where you give lip service to transparency, whereas we need regulation that actually demands it. Yeah. Or copyright. I know that, uh, you know, while Sam Altman is is clamoring for types of regulation he likes, the EU regulation, I believe, was about copyright, right, about about the copyright status of the materials they train the AI on. And they said, oh, if you put that into place, oh, we'll just have to leave entirely and it'll sink us. We don't like that type of regulation. And I I, as someone who, you know, makes shit for a living, uh, am a little bit concerned about my shit that I make being used as training data that could be used to rip me off. You should be very concerned. And I mean, there's a, another case um, where existing law just doesn't really envision the scenario that we have. So we have copyright law, but it doesn't envision a, a world in which the internet can just be gobbled up wholesale and basically no compensation to the artists. So like, you know, it shouldn't be that every podcast that you ever did is now 
germane and they could just copy you. But right now, you know, there's yeah. great limits to what you can actually do. And, and I'll say there's this weird argument that I always get in the comments when I talk about this on YouTube videos where they say, well, when an AI internalizes, you know, sucks up and trains itself on every single piece of content that you ever make and then makes an imitation of your voice uh, or your image or your writing style or anything. Oh, well, that's all that humans do. It's humans do that, too. That's intelligence. That's how intelligence works. And no, it fucking isn't <laughs> like what what GPT three or four does is not actually similar to the process of, of writing something new. It's literally using a stochastic model to choose the next word in a sentence that will most resemble its training data. That's not what it, uh, it know, is for a human you know to, what, to be writing. You're, you're and so, dead on. And I just thought of a different way of making that argument, which is when you you know write about love, you've actually experienced love. When it writes about mm -hmm. love, it's just putting together words that other people said about love. And so, I Correct. mean, in that sentence, in that sense, its creative process, so to speak, if you even want to call it that, is completely different from a human's creative process. Yeah, I, I mean, I uh, the example I've used in my past videos on this is that if you ask it to output a script for Adam Ruins Everything, my old show on True TV, it can do it. But the only reason it can do it is because I came up with the show in the first place and it cannot come up with that show. Um, it is completely incapable of all it can do is reproduce things it has already seen. Whereas I can come up with things that are new. And now people are going to get into the comments and say, oh, well, they're going to come up with a better one in five years. It'll be able to do that. Fuck you. Let's not talk about hypotheticals. We, yeah, we, I'm sorry, we, Gary. We can talk I'm about it in five years and talk about it. Show me. Like for 30 years, I've been in this field and I keep getting promissory notes. Yeah, but when we make a bigger <laughs> model, it'll solve it. Like in 2016, I said driverless cars are much harder than anybody thinks they are because you have this problem of outliers that um, – you know, weird things happen. They're not in the training set. Systems don't know how to deal with it. And I said, there's lots of outliers. And they said, yeah, we're just going to like make more data in Grand Theft Auto. We'll do it in video games. We'll have enough data. We'll make the models bigger. It'll all be hunky-dory. And they spent another $100 billion. And yeah, literally, and that's not an exaggeration. They literally spent $100 billion since I said, you know, maybe this isn't going to work out the way you think it is with this kind of software. And so here we are, you know, seven years later, and I still hear, yeah, we'll make it bigger. Come to me when you have. And they make these arguments about both AI and self-driving cars that are sort of almost designed to be just stupid smart enough for people to repeat in the comments to YouTube videos. So for instance, people will say about self-driving cars, which are currently killing people on the roads, They'll say, oh, well, they kill people at a lower rate than human drivers because human drivers yeah, are so bad. Yeah, the data bad. just so came out. It's actually the opposite now that we finally It's the opposite. The Teslas are killing more people than human drivers, or they're killing people at a higher rate than human drivers. And so that talking point that they came up with 10 years ago in order to force self-driving cars down our throats because, okay, well, they're better, so we have to accept them. Turns out it was bullshit all along. Yeah. And so we really need to be, uh, we need to be really, really skeptical of the of the AI boosters who are leveling which, similar which arguments. Tragic. Of, oh, this is inevitable. This is yeah. tragic because someday they really will be better than human drivers. And people will be so used to having been bullshitted, if that's the right participle, mm. they'll be so used to being bullshitted, they won't believe it. So we will transition, it might be 30 years from now, but to a state where it would actually be better to have the cars drive than the people. But people will be like, I heard that before. And they won't use the cars because there's been so much lying and manipulating of the data and misrepresentation and putting it in the right light and whatever that like, yeah. people are going you know, to start to get pretty skeptical about it. I, I, I don't think that I don't think that we are going to have them. I think we're going to build a goddamn public transportation system in this country that is going to obviate the need for self-driving cars. 
Uh, but well, that's that's my vision of the we, future, we, and I'm boosting it. We, I think we can, we can live get there. in hope for that one. <laughs> well, it's as plausible as what these folks are claiming, in my view. Um, but so I assume that you do have a view on what regulations you feel that we actually need around AI. I do. So let's talk about what a few of those might be. So I have suggestions kind of from the top level, like macro level all the way down. And, you know, I don't know how much time you want to go into it, but I'll start with, I think that the U.S. Um, and other countries similarly need a central agency um, or a cabinet level position or something like that. You know, a, a secretary of AI with supporting infrastructure whose full-time job it is to look at all the ramifications of this because they are so vast. Mm -hmm. And because even though we have existing agencies that can help, none of the existing agencies were really designed in the AI era. And there are all kinds of cases that sort of slip through, like, what do you do about wholesale misinformation as opposed to retail misinformation? Like if some foreign actor makes a billion pieces of misinformation a day, like maybe you have to rethink how we address that. And so we definitely need a central, you know, someone whose responsibility, somebody who lives and breathes AI, follows all of this stuff. We don't want to leave it to like the Senate has to make different rules when GPT-5 comes out from GPT-4 and from GPT-6. Like that's not what they're there for. They're, they're there. Right, so we need, we, we need a regulatory agency similar to the EPA or another agency where when facts on the ground change, that agency can issue new regulatory rules without having to go through Congress, exactly. which is how we regulate. We got the FAA. We've got NHTSA for highway safety, et cetera. We obviously need this for AI. I mean, it's obvious to me. It's probably obvious to you. Not mm. everybody in Washington agrees. People will tell you it's very hard to stand up a new agency, which is true. There, there are it complications. Is. It's not trivial, but we need it. So that's one thing I would say. Similarly, do you have any? Do you have any concern? Let me just ask you, Gary, about that sure. first, because you know agencies of that type in the past have become captured by those groups. If you look at you know, the FAA and, you know, the Boeing 737 MAX that really falls at the feet of the FAA's, you know, sort of having lax regulation. You can look at other agencies that have that problem. And why they, is that? They, it's because you have the revolving door. They got my understanding. I'm not an expert. But my expert, uh, my non-expert understanding is that they got tricked on that one. They got told this is not mm. really a new vehicle. And it really was. It was there were not fundamental yeah. changes. I think that the but, general answer to that question is you have to have independents, mostly scientists, outside scientists who can raise their hand and say, no, they're telling you that this is you know, just the same airplane, but they've gutted all of these systems and replaced them. And we need to understand these new systems. They're, you know, nice on paper, but we need data to see if this is actually going to work. We need, for example, to understand how the pilots are going to respond to these new systems, which in principle, you know, sort of mathematically correct, but if they fool the pilots, then you're going to have all kinds of mayhem and we need to look into that. And so you have to yeah. have independence. What you don't want is regulatory capture where the companies being regulated, we already talked about this, are, are the ones who are making the rules. And so, you know, Boeing shifted things and framed things in a way that suited their purpose, but didn't suit the public's purpose. Yeah, that's my concern is that, you know, we we stand up this agency and then 10 years from now, the person running it is like Sam Altman's brother or whatever, because he has the power to get his buddy appointed to run the thing. And that's been the case with agencies in the past, uh, uh, you know, when, especially when an administration changes. But yeah. but that's just good government. That's a pro that's a problem of good government that exists. For, and it's a serious for any field, problem, so. right? I mean, it's 
it's not to be yeah. ignored, but I think we have to face it. So my my second you know recommendation I just already talked about, which is scientists have to be involved in this process. We just cannot leave yeah. it to the companies and, and the governments alone. And the governments have been running around putting out press releases and doing photo ops with the leaders of the companies without having scientists in the room or without prominently displaying the scientists that are there. And that turns my stomach every time I see that. Like they did that in the UK, they've done that in the US where, you know, they roll out some top government official and they have like, you know, open AI and deep mind CEOs or things like that. And you have to have scientists there to send the message that this is not just, you know, my brother-in-law running the organization kind of thing that you just talked about. I, I mean, not, not only do you need to have scientists there, it would probably be better not to have the companies that you are seeking to regulate uh, in the in the halls of power. You know, if, if the point is to regulate uh, the use of AI and regulate these companies, then you probably shouldn't, you know, welcome them all they, to the White should, House for a big summit where you do what they say. To, right. I mean, yeah. you, you actually do need them in the room. I mean, they have a lot of knowledge about what's practical and where things are. I mean, they should have a voice and, okay. you know, they're affected and we don't we don't want to you know, regulate our way into losing the AI race with China. Like there, there are lots of reasons to have the company in the room, but it has to be in moderation with other, other voices too. You just can't trust them for the whole deal. You mentioned the AI race with China, I, I, not to interrupt your, your regulation uh, uh, list. Cause I want to get back to it. Um, but is, is that a real concern? Because that to me again, sounds like the sort of story that's told by someone who wants me to do what they say. Oh, if you don't uh, do what I want yeah. you to. We're going to lose the AI race with China. There's certainly a political risk there, isn't there? there there's like a short term and a long term version of that. The short term mm. version is if if China gets GPT five six months before us, it doesn't really matter. I mean, what are they going to do? They're going to write more boilerplate text with it. Like <laughs> it, it, it's just not artificial general intelligence. They're not going to like figure out interstellar travel and get ahead of us on minerals because they can go to you know uh, other solar systems and we can't like it's not that powerful and i think a lot of people you know but china and then you're like well, what about china and like but if they get gpt5 first and you're like well yeah so they get it first so yeah, what? what like i mean it'd be you know it probably raise their productivity a little bit you know it'd be nice to have i'm not saying it wouldn't be nice to have but it's not game changing the way that a lot of people think i do think that whoever gets to real artificial general intelligence, which I don't even think we're particularly on the right track to, that's going to be a big advantage when we get there. But there's a lot of factors that go into who makes those discoveries first. Just building a bigger, larger language model trained on more data, but basically more of the same, that's not what innovation is. Yeah. We need paradigm shifts here because the fact is large language models make stuff up. They cannot help themselves. They make up authoritative sounding bullshit. Um, I just learned this great phrase, which is um, frequently wrong, never in doubt. That's what large language models are. <laughs> that is not yeah. what we are looking for. We want something that is always right, does not make shit up, that you can count on. And whoever gets to that AI, that's a significant advantage. But how do you get there? You know, Pouring more money into bigger clusters of computers to run a technology that you know doesn't really work correctly, that's not the right idea. The right idea is like, how do you foster a lot of science to look at different angles that we've overlooked. That's what we really need to do. And if yeah. China takes a broader perspective on AI, then they could actually get there first. If we take a broader perspective, maybe we'll get there first. I want to dive in a little bit more into the differences between AGI, general intelligence, and, and the sort of technologies we have now. But we have to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Gary Marcus. As a Factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment 
to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show. I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe, but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you want to safeguard yourself like that and live with a peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com slash Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com slash Adam. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Okay, we're back with Gary Marcus. Uh, so Gary, please walk us through your other proposals for, for regulating AI. So next thing would be global AI governance. I think we need to coordinate what we're doing across the globe, which is actually in the interest of the companies itself. You know, Large language models are expensive to train, and you don't want to have 195 countries, 195 sets of rules requiring 195 bits of violence to the um, environment because each of these is so um, expensive and, and so energetically costly. Mm -hmm. um, so you want coordination for that reason. The companies don't really want completely different regimes in, in each place. And ultimately, as things do get more powerful, we want to make sure that all of this stuff is under control. And so I think we need some coordination around that. Next thing I would suggest is something like the FDA if you're going to deploy AI at large scale. So it's one thing if you want to do research in your own lab, but if you're going to roll something out to 100 million people, you should make sure that the benefits actually outweigh the risks. And yeah. independent scientists should be part of that. And they should be able to say, well, you've made this application, but there's this risk and you haven't done enough to address it. Or, you know, you've said there's this benefit, but we look at your measures and they're not very solid. Can you go back and do some more? So there should be a little bit of negotiation um, until things are really solid. Another thing we should have is auditing after things come out. Make sure, for example, that systems are not being used in biased ways. So like are large language models being used to make job decisions? And if they are, are they discriminating? We need to know that. But uh, now all these regulations sound great to me. They sound important having an FDA style agency, et cetera. Uh, that, that sounds like a great thing to do when you've got uh, technology that's causing problems. Uh, the history of that sort of regulation in the United States is that when you have a new field, 
That field desperately resists regulation with every fiber of its being. And it isn't until there are real massive harms, people dying in the streets from tainted food that we get, you know, food regulation and, you know, instituted by Teddy Roosevelt. I told that story on my Netflix show, The G Word. Um, It requires generally like wholesale death and devastation before we start regulating these things. Um, Do you feel that there's any prospect in the near term for the kind of regulations that you're talking about? Or are we going to have a lot of harms first? It's difficult to say. I mean, when I gave the Senate testimony, there was actually real strong bipartisan recognition that we do need to move quickly, that government moved too slowly on social media, didn't really get to the right place. And so there's some recognition that there's a need to do something now. Whether that gets us over the hump, I don't know. Part of my thinking is figure it out now what we need to do. And even if it doesn't pass, we'll have it ready. So if there is a sort of 9-11 moment, some massive you know, AI-induced cybercrime or something like that, we'll be there. We'll know what to do. And so I don't think we should waste time right now being defeatist. I think we should figure out what is in the best interest of the nation and really of the globe. And be as prepared as possible, whether it passes down or later. I agree that we should do as much as possible. I'm just a little bit concerned about the amount of power wielded by the tech industry, you know, that this is one of the most profitable industries in America. So it's very easy for those CEOs to go and get a meeting with Joe Biden, whatever they want. And it's harder for folks such as yourself or or some of the other uh uh, you know, academics we've had on the show to uh, to to have those conversations. But I agree I, I, that we I, need I'll to be having this. the conversation. I, I'm in a little bit of a special category, especially after the Senate um, testimony. But right now, it's actually very easy for me to get meetings. I, I met. Um, <laughs> well, I, I guess I shouldn't be too explicit, but I, I, I'm able to talk to whoever I need to talk to in Washington and um, you know Europe and and so forth right now. So um, people in power right now are recognizing that they don't entirely trust the big tech companies, that they do need some outside voices. And for whatever reason, I right now am in that position and they're they're taking me very seriously. Um, If I say I'm going to be in Washington, could you meet next week? People say yes. And in fact, I was just in Washington, met a lot of very high ranking people. And then I got on the airplane and then some other high ranking people are like, when are you coming back? Um, And and so um, I think just by coincidence, but um, you know, People notice the testimony that I gave, want to solve this yeah. problem. Like they're sincere in wanting to solve it. They, there's a problem that not everybody agrees about what to do. And everybody's trying to take credit for having the the one true solution. And like, in some ways, it's an embarrassment of riches. Everybody's trying to help. In some ways, there's a coordination problem. But I would say that more than any time I've ever seen before, the government is reaching out to at least some of us who are experts in the field trying to say, you know, what would you do in this circumstance? So I give them some credit for that. Okay. And it's always nice to feel wanted. I know. It's very emotionally validating for you. Exactly. <laughs> I feel good. Um, who cares if the world goes to hell in a handbasket? It's been a good month for me. No, just kidding. Well, let's talk a little bit more. Let's talk a little bit more about general intelligence because I, I, I talk to people every day who they play with chat GPT for a few minutes and then they are convinced that we are around the corner from having data from Star Trek wandering around, taking everybody's jobs, right? Doing the doing not just the work of human, but living human lives and et cetera. And it's been difficult for me to explain how, uh, you know, this is this is an algorithm that outputs words just like Deep Blue was an algorithm that, that played chess. And we're still a long way away from uh, AGI 
you you uh, use the metaphor before of of someone inventing a knife versus a gun. I'm like they've invented they have invented a knife, right? They have not invented a machine gun, right? And they don't even know they haven't even invented gunpowder. They don't even know that there should be a they circular a hole in the middle for a bullet to come out. And of, they you think know? they can do everything yeah. with this spatula. And you know, yeah. you could do a you know you can use a spatula as a hammer if you really have to. It doesn't work that well. <laughs> That's sort of where we are. Here, here's an example crossing your two streams a little bit, which is GPT-4 has been trained on a lot of chess games. And I can mm-hmm. I can infer that, but I can also kind of prove it. I'll tell you in a second. Um, and it's also been exposed to the rules of chess. Like we know it's read Wikipedia. The rules are there. Um, and if you have it play chess for like the first 15 moves, when it can stick to what it has a lot of data on, it will follow the rules. And you, you will think that it understands the Rui Lopez opening or something like that. But when you get out mm-hmm. of the opening book, it will start doing weird stuff like having bishops jump over rooks. And it's at that point mm-hmm. that you realize even with all of this data, it can't actually infer the rules of chess, which have not, except in tiny little ways, changed in the last 2000 years. Once I said this in a podcast that hadn't changed at all, and I got a long memo of like the five changes that have happened <laughs> over the last Oh my God, the chess nerds, so, back so, off, so, it's so, okay. <laughs> And Passan rule, I knew it was new, but there were a couple others. Too. But so, you know, by and large, they've been stable for 2,000 years. There's lots of data in the database, and the system still can't figure it out. Like, that is, you know, right, artificial general intelligence should be able to read the rules of chess and figure out for itself how to play. But instead, right, because it's it, it's not a chess engine. It's not a you know a general deducing engine. It's not. it's a text generation engine, it and so it's able it to is. generate it's a text generation yeah. engine. And it's so hard for people to grasp that because the text looks so good because it has so much text to mimic that people um, kind of attribute to it these magical powers that just aren't there. Right, because all it's doing is chopping up. Previous moves that it's seen it's in it's read every spatulas pulling together little bits of text that they you know they each individual bit right. has been lifted, but the spatulas don't actually know what the hell they're talking about. But Chat GPT as a product is brilliant because I believe, based on my use of it, it's designed to make you think that there is uh, a deeper intelligence behind it by producing text, which to a human. Uh, to, w- we really use language use as a sign of intelligence. If my dog could suddenly talk to me, I'd be like, oh my God, my dog is as intelligent as I am. The fact that my dog can understand a couple words I use as a sign of intelligence, right? Um, and in so some the ways, your that, dog is actually yeah. smarter because your dog, actually, <laughs> I haven't met your dog, but dogs in general. Um, are, She's very smart. Are, are able, everybody says that about their dog, but, um, you know, it's the Lake Wobegon effect. Every dog is above average, but your above average dog, like all above average dogs can navigate in the world, right? And yes. can figure stuff out. It can go into new environments and figure out you know, how to swim or what to jump over or whatever. There's a kind of flexibility that your dog has that these machines don't. And uh, there's actually interesting research that dogs have a little bit of what we call theory of mind, understanding people and and their desires and stuff to some some. Oh, they absolutely do. And these machines, they're just mimicking, mimicking text. Sometimes they get it right. Sometimes they get it wrong. But I would say your dog is actually smarter that we have not, in fact, solved dog level uh, intelligence, let alone like chimpanzee <laughs> intelligence or something like that. So, 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 what are some of the qualities that you know AI uh, uh, as we currently have it 
is dramatically missing that separate it from from any kind of general intelligence. Uh, yeah, I, I, let's make I this think concrete. It's barking entirely up the wrong tree is the first thing I'll say. Mm. So the right tree for an intelligent creature to have is to recognize that there is an external world and that it is guessing at that external world. So right now I'm looking at you and I have a model of the world where you're sitting. So there are chairs, there are pillows, there's a microphone. I could be wrong. The whole thing could be faked. I could be a brain in a vat. But I have a theory about what's out there. And probably most of the time, those theories are right. And then I can make inferences about it. So like if water suddenly came into the room, I could look at the level and be like, you know, maybe we should save this podcast for another time. I think, you know, it's getting maybe a little a risky burst, in there. Right? Yeah. Um, and so, so we can reason about the world we have models of the world if we watch a movie we make a model of the movie um of, of the world in the movie so what the characters are are doing and why they're doing it and so forth so we're constantly going through this process of building models of worlds same if we play a video game we kind of learn there might be a different physics and you know the the rules that control that world Wait. We actually do even more than that, because when I play a video game, I think a human somewhere designed this game. I know about the history of game design. I know that the human probably wants me to have a fun experience. And so they probably if there's a if I go over here, there's probably going to be a guy giving me a quest there because in a video game, the game designer wants me to have fun. And so they're going to put quests around. That's right. Like I literally am applying my theory of mind to the game itself. Like when I was a kid, games didn't have tutorials and now they do. Right. And so right. we've all learned that. So that's part of our expectation about the whole world of video games. And, you know, if I put you in front of Pac-Man, you might think to yourself, there probably wasn't a tutorial for that because it was an older game or whatever. So you have all of this very rich knowledge of the world, which again, a text, you know, we've kind of beat that together, but um, a text com um, pastiche machine do doesn't have. Um, so that's the yeah. first step, I think, to genuine intelligence. A second step is to be able to be flexible and deal with circumstances that are different and to reason about them. So, like, if a tidal wave did come into your your studio right now, like, I've never seen that before, but I could still reason about it and think, like, you know, should we renegotiate when we're going to finish shooting? Should I ask about that? Will I seem like an asshole because I'm more interested in my recording than in your health? Maybe I should phrase it a different way. And so I can do all of that, you know, analysis relative to your circumstance, even though I've never you know, seen a tidal wave in a studio before. Hopefully I won't today. Um, but I could do that. I could reason about these weird circumstances. That's, I think, part of intelligence is, is to be able to do that. And these current systems just don't really do that. And in fact, they don't reason at all. They, they kind of retrieve stuff and they ma make synonyms around them, but they don't have an abstract ability to reason. Yes, and that abstract ability and the ability to take in new information from around the world, have a model of the world in your mind, have a, have a model of other minds in your mind, is a completely different type of thing than what the large language models do. And this is, to me, the crux of my argument with people who are going to come into the comments of even this video when we put, put it on YouTube, they're going to come in and they're going to say, Adam, you don't understand the AI is, is going to get much better and they're going to build a thing that does that. And I'm like, I don't think they are because I think the thing they currently built is an entirely different type of thing from what general intelligence is I look, like a large language. Uh, do, do you agree with that? I look forward to the comment section. Maybe I'll even drop by. I don't usually <laughs> please uh, do. Uh, um, Cause no, you're totally right. I, I, I could put a little nuance around what you say, but I think you're basically right. So there, there are pathways to get to AI 
we're on a particular path. And I don't think that path is really leading to artificial general intelligence. Um, sometimes people use the metaphor of like climbing mountains. It's like we've climbed one mountain, but the reality is the path we are on is no guarantee whatsoever of AGI that, um, you know, look at driverless cars, you know, people have been saying for years and years, we'll just get a little more data on a work and it hasn't. Yeah. And I think we can expect the same thing with the hallucination problem. It's not going to go away. It's inherent in how these systems work. So we need some new ideas. And the question is, how do we foster those ideas? I think the problem is not just that we're on the wrong mountain. We're not on a mountain at all. We're climbing a jungle gym. Maybe we're going spelunking, you no, know, but <laughs> no, now you're not being fair. Okay. It, I mean, it, it, the view from this mountain is, you know, nicer than any view we've ever had, but also you can look up and you're like, yeah, okay. It's not really, you know, it, it's pretty cool that we're up here. You know, people 20 years ago couldn't get this far. It, it's cool. It's yeah. genuinely cool. But like, the, I don't mean to say that it's not cool. It has risks associated too, but it, it's amazing that it works as well as it does. But I but think uh, it's also not the right thing. But I think one of the biggest myths about this industry and the tech industry generally is the myth of inevitable progress. Because we have chat GPT today, that means we are guaranteed to have the science fiction version that I'm imagining or that I'm selling you. And that I think is the most important link in the chain to break, not just for the public, but for lawmakers. Cause I think lawmakers are, are absolutely. liable to believe it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like the, the tech executives signing this, like we're all going to turn into paper clips thing is, is their way of trying to perpetuate that. Myth. Right. I mean, not for all of them, but, but for some of them, it, it's a way of perpetuating that myth. There is absolutely no guarantee that the path that we're on is going to get us to AGI any more than there was a path. I mean, a guarantee that the path of bigger data was going to get us to driverless cars. Yeah. It didn't work. Yeah. Uh, well, let's let's talk about something very specific to my own heart. Uh, I'm a member of the Writers Guild of America. I'm also on a negotiating mm. committee. We're on strike right now. Uh, one of our strike issues is re regulating AI in our contract, that we have specific terms that we uh, want to put in place to prevent AI from being used to uh, either passed off as our work product or that we'd be forced to adapt uh, the work of AI, um, basically putting in place uh, measures that we uh, hope will protect us from companies using this nascent technology for scurrilous purposes. I'm curious, in your view, what is the threat of, you know, we're talking not not AGI, but the large language models we have today, uh, such as chat GPT, GPT-4, 5, whatever, uh, for, you know, uh, 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 undermining workers and, and causing other problems in the near term? I don't know. Well, I mean, I guess you could ask that about writing, you can ask it about many domains. So, mm -hmm. you know, voiceover actors are in trouble. Yeah. Like you can clone anybody's voice. There, There is nothing I can do to really make them feel better. I mean, I guess there's some stuff about emotion that might be a little hard to capture, but, you know, voice actors are clearly in trouble. Um, screenwriters, I think, are in less trouble, but they might find their jobs shifting some. You know, what makes a really good movie is like a plot twist that you didn't expect or really believable dialogue, interesting story. And these story, <coughs> sorry, these systems are not that good at it. Like people have written dialogues with me in them um, where I'm debating somebody or something like that. And they get my top line points, but they never get any of the subtlety of the arguments that I make. You know, people say these things imitate Shakespeare or they it, imitate Agatha Christie or whatever. They get like some of the statistics of the words. They don't really get what these systems don't really get what makes those authors special. And I think it's a ways from that. 
Um, I do think the screenwriters are right to raise the question of like, how are we going to think about all of this? Um, I don't think immediately they're in too much jeopardy. Although the thing to worry about, I think, is you could write a half-assed first draft with the machine, and then you make the writer do all the actual work, but you say, yeah, that was just a rewrite. We're not going to pay you that much for that. That, uh, that, I think, is a real issue. That, in fact, is exactly our issue and our concern, is that, uh, look, here's the way I'll put it. If I, and I think I've framed it this way on this podcast before, but look, I, as a comedy writer, if I write a joke, right, or if I, if I'm just trying to tell you a joke right now, Gary, right, I have to use all my contextual knowledge about the world that we discussed earlier. I have to say, who is Gary? What things does he know about in his, you know, my theory of how his mind works? But looks aren't everything. Well, no, it's not just looks. It's not just looks. <laughs> but I have to think, all right, you know, what, uh, what age are you? What are your cultural references? What has recently happened in the world, you know? And uh, what, what is a observation yeah. that I can make that is going to strike him as true that he hasn't heard anyone made before that'll connect to what we're talking about at this present moment in a surprising way, right? Uh, in a certain sense, anytime a joke is written, it needs to be a brand new joke for that person or for that audience, right? For that scenario. If I'm writing a late night joke, I need to have read the newspaper today and know what most of the public thinks about the news so that I can write a joke that's going to track for what they think. And when you get into that job, that you literally need data from Star Trek in order to process all that. But our bosses do not know that. Our bosses don't understand how writing works. They don't understand what is the difference between good reading and bad, good writing and bad writing. And they also are stupid enough to believe the oversold hype from the tech companies who have told them that they can use it to uh, undercut writers. And so they'll they'll use it as a as a scheme to say, okay, we're going to have the AI write this, and oh, the AI is the writer. We just need you to punch it up, go to set, uh, do all the collaborative work with everybody else. Um, and, uh, uh, that basically our concern is not the technology per se, it's the technology being used by the companies to, to undermine us. Um, is that something that, that you, uh, see happening in other industries as well? Is that, is that a general concern or is it just one that, that we have as the writer's guilt? I'll give you another example that I think worked a little bit that way, which is CNET started having AI write its news stories. They had editors look at them. But it because it was sort of polished, the editors just thought it was fine. You know, it was all grammatical and so forth. And then they put out 70 stories and 40 of them had mistakes. Mm -hmm. And so that's an example where people are not really putting the heart into it. Um, you know, if you're editing jokes, you're going to put the heart into it. But most of the work is really the human who's later in the loop. In, in my own podcast, Humans versus Machines, we had Bob Mankoff on. He used to be the cartoon editor at the New Yorker. He invented the caption contest. And he's been playing with these things quite a bit. And he says, you know, sometimes they write good jokes now, but they write a lot of bad jokes too. And they the systems themselves don't have any sense about what are the good jokes and what are the bad jokes. So you can use them as a tool, as a human, but you wouldn't trust it to, you know, write a set. Um, and we actually went through a routine that he had um, uh, about uh, evolutionary altruism and long-termism. And it was like, it was an okay draft, but, you know, we walked through and like a lot of it you wouldn't want to, See, you know, really use. But here, here's what I'd argue is that you'd say, uh, you know, someone might say, well, okay, it writes a couple good jokes and a lot of bad jokes. So eventually the ratio will get better. Uh, my, what I would say in contrast is, no, actually, knowing the difference between a good joke and a bad joke, that is what writing is. And, it, it, you know, so so if Bob Mankoff is looking at all these output cartoon jokes and saying, that's that's the one good joke, I'll make a cartoon out of that. Guess what? He's doing writing. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? In the same way that if he, if he, if right. he was I mean, rearranging magnetic, look, if, magnetic poetry, right? If I can keep one piece of the equation, the large language model or Bob, I'm going to choose Bob, yeah. right? Because he can actually tell me what joke is funny. <laughs> well, uh, look, where, sh where should we wrap up here? Um, how do you see the next few years of artificial intelligence playing out? What is your best case scenario? And what is your worst case scenario for the next five years, say? Like, what, what is the choice that we're facing right now in terms it, of how we approach this? It's funny you should ask that because in some of the public talks that I've been giving in the last couple of weeks, I started actually making two slides to illustrate mm. that. Um, and one of them was kind of utopia. It's like we get our act together. We come up with good global regulation. We start using AI. We develop new forms of AI. We, we're no longer stuck on the large language models. And we start having AI live up to its potential, help with medicine and climate change and scientific discovery, maybe build elder care robots to help with the demographic inversion. That's the upside. The downside is the companies write all the regulation. Nothing is transparent. Privacy is constantly in, in invaded. Misinformation runs the next election. And basically, we wind up with anarchy, you know, before long. <clears throat> the point that I make is not that I know which of these. I think both are still possibilities, but rather that we need to make the right choices right now. We don't have a lot of time. And the choices that we make about how we're going to regulate it what research we're going to fund and so forth is going to affect probably the next century. Like we really want to get this right. I think that is incredibly true. Uh, but I actually want you to expand on one thing because you talked about, we could have all the benefits of AI and I want to confess to something. I'm a, I'm a skeptic on this topic. I, I think it's, I think critical thinking is really, really important. And so that's what I've been focusing on in my own communication. I think something I have not focused on enough is the potential benefits of some of this technology if used properly and not in a way that is going to undermine workers or, you know, create misinformation or overhype bullshit. Um, so uh, paint me a little bit more of that picture of, you know, what is what are the benefits that could come from this technology when used well? I, I think the kind of stuff that Peter Diamandis talks about for abundance is still possible. I don't think it's the likely outcome, but where we just make everything faster, cheaper, better, because we use AI to advance material science and advance medical science and so forth. Like, I think all of that is still possible. Um, it has to, I think, come with policies around tax credits and things like that to make sure that the wealth doesn't just flow to the top. There, uh -huh. there are lots of things we'd this, have to get right. This sounds like so, the Industrial Revolution all over again, which was uh, a little bit of a mixed blessing. I think we could all agree. <laughs> you know, we are deep in, you know, potential mixed blessing land. And yeah. I think we have an opportunity to shape a positive, thriving world with AI. But it's not the default. Like, we're going to have to put our, our asses into it in order to get, you know, to a good place. Well, Gary, thank you so much for coming on the show uh, to, to, to walk us through it. I, I hope you'll come back at some point in the future, maybe after we've gone a little bit down one of those two futures that you described. Uh, your podcast is called Humans versus Machines. You can get that wherever you get your podcasts. GaryMarcus.substack.com for your excellent newsletter. It's one of my favorite sources on AI. Um, thank you so much for being here. Is there anything else you'd like to plug before we let you go? At Gary Marcus on Twitter. And this was a really wonderful conversation. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here, Gary.
Well, thank you so much once again to Gary Marcus for coming on the show for that fascinating conversation. If you enjoyed it as much as I did, head to patreon.com slash Adam Conover to support the show. Just five bucks a month gets you every episode of our podcast ad-free. You can even join our community Discord. We do a live community book club over Zoom. It's so much fun. And if you support us at $15 a month, I will read your name out on this very podcast. This week, I want to thank Hugo Villasmythe, Shannon J. Lane, Matt Clausen, Eki, 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 Patang. And Joseph Ginsburg. Uh, Joseph, work on your screen name. Eki, 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 Eki Patang kind of outdid you there. Once again, I want to remind you that I'm going on tour. If you live near Baltimore, St. Louis, Buffalo, or Providence, Rhode Island, head to adamconover.net for tickets. Thank you to Sam Raubman and Tony Wilson for producing this show with me. Everybody here at HeadGum for making it possible. And I will see you next week on Factually. Thank you so much for listening. That was a HeadGum Podcast.